All right, the book of Mark. So the first question that we have with Mark is, who is this guy? Who is Mark? With Matthew, it was pretty obvious, right? I mean, we all knew Matthew. Matthew was one of the 12. Well, guess what? Mark is not one of the 12. So how did he write a gospel? How did this happen? And why don't we see him like as a major character in the gospels? Mark's name is never mentioned in the book of Mark. Not only that, Mark's name is never mentioned in any of the four gospels. So who is this guy? How did we get this book? And how do we know that it was accurate? So some really important questions. So we are going to start today with looking at who the author is, who Mark is. I I had a lot of other introductory material that I would love to share with you, but I'm going to jump from talking about the author into the questions and then if we have time after we do the questions then we'll come back and finish the introductory material so that's kind of how we're going to do it today so a little bit different than what we've done in the past so we need to take a few minutes and think about who mark is now i have a lot of information on the next couple of slides so if you're a note taker you're probably going to be frustrated with me because i'm going to move faster than you're probably going to be able to write this down but if you really want the information i can give it to you later So we are going to look at two aspects of Mark as the identity of the gospel writer. First of all, we're going to look at Mark from Scripture, because his name is mentioned in Scripture, just not the Gospels. And then we're going to look at what we know about Mark from church history, a little bit different approach for us this morning. So let's look, first of all, all, what we know about Mark from Scripture. This is everything, everything we know about Mark captured on this slide. Luke writes both his gospel and the book of Acts, and Luke introduces us to Mark in Acts chapter 12. And, you know, if you want a little extra credit, read Acts 12 through 15 and focus on this minor character, Mark, and what he has to do. And and his role in those moments is actually fairly important. We see him being introduced. You remember when Peter was in jail and the, and the angel does the jailbreak? Peter gets out. He goes to a house. Whose house was that? Well, it was Mark's mother's house. That's who, whose house it was. And that's how he's introduced to us. Sometimes he's called John Mark in Scripture. And in the later passages, he's just called Mark. So we see that the early church is meeting in John Mark's house, mother's house in Jerusalem for prayer meeting. And they're praying there. So he has the spiritual influence from a family standpoint. We don't know how old he is at this point. He is selected by Paul and Barnabas to go on their first missionary journey at the end of Acts 12. But it doesn't work out so well. And when they get to Perga, which is one of the first stops, I don't remember if it was the first stop, which is in an area called Pamphylia, um, John Mark says, you know, this isn't for me, I'm going home. We don't know exactly why that happened, um, but Paul doesn't take kindly to it. And so Mark goes home, Paul and Barnabas go on. We find out later in Colossians that Barnabas was Mark's cousin, so he's a relative. In Acts 15, Paul and Barnabas are getting ready to go out on their second missionary trip, and Barnabas says, let's give Mark another try. Let's let's." take Mark with us. And Paul's like, no way. Did that, not doing it again. 
And there, they are, this disagreement is described as so sharp that they go different ways. It drives a wedge between them, it splits them, and now this, the Holy Spirit, through using a disagreement, has two missionary journeys instead of one. So God uses it for his benefit, amazingly. We see Paul taking this kind of hard line on him, like he failed us once, no, no second chance. And Barnabas being, you know, his name means son of encouragement. And this guy's his cousin. And it's like, he wants to encourage Mark. And, you know, I'm sure he's like, hey, he learned his lesson. You know, let's give him another shot. And so Barnabas takes Mark and they go a different direction. Mark kind of disappears from the scene at that point, as does Barnabas. So, because the focus is on Paul in Acts, right? But then if we fast forward to near the end of Paul's life, decades later, we see Paul referencing him. Who wrote Colossians chapter 4, verse 10? Well, that was Paul. Paul wrote it. And he's mentioning Mark here, and he's not doing it in bad terms. And in Philemon, I struggled with what the two-letter abbreviation for Philemon was, so I came up with PN. So that PN 24 is Philemon verse 24. Paul describes him as a fellow worker. This, this word means a partner. He is a partner in the gospel. That's a positive description. And he describes him in 2 Timothy 4 as useful for ministry. So at some point in Paul's life, Mark has come back into it, and Mark has proven to be uh, useful for ministry. He is a partner in the gospel. And uh, Paul is speaking well of him, which is wonderful to see that reconciliation. And then we have one other reference, and that's in 1 Peter 5, verse 13. Peter, speaking a little bit in code, says, Here I am in Babylon, which all the commentators are indicating that that was code word for Rome. And he says that Mark is with him. So here we see Mark is rubbing shoulders with, you know, some of the pillars of the, of the apostles, you know, Peter and Paul. And that's what we know from Scripture. So, important distinction here. What we know from Scripture, we know is completely true because it's part of the inspired work of God. We have extra-biblical accounts that we call church history, which are not inspired. So we have to take this with a little bit, of, little bit more uh, discerning. So first of all, there was a, a guy named Papias who was the bishop of Herapolis. I'm going to make up the pronunciations because I, I don't know what they are. Um, I'm just going to say them confidently and hope, hopefully that, that works. Um, anyway, he, he, he wrote in AD 140, and he recounted a conversation that he had with the apostle John so that has to go back like 50 years before that. And John evidently confirmed to Papias that Mark was the author of this gospel and that Mark got his information from Peter. So this is like third-hand hearsay. So like if this is evidence introduced in court, it never sees the light of day. It's never going to be introduced. But this is kind of the best evidence we have at this point. So he, Papias says that Mark listened to Peter, he was traveling with Peter, he heard these stories over and over again from Peter, and he accurately wrote them down. He makes a point of saying he was accurate in recounting what Peter taught. Now, we have one little problem. Papias's work is lost. <laughs> no one has a copy of it. 
So where did we get this information? Well, we got this information from this guy named Eusebius who wrote the ecclesiastical history, and that is evidently something we do have. And he wrote it a couple hundred years after that. Now, it feels a little bit like a stretch, but it doesn't, it's not in discord with what we know from Scripture. There was another guy, Justin Martyr, who um, wrote in AD 150, and he said Mark's gospel was the memoirs of Peter, and that it was written while Mark was in Italy. So we get some information there. Another guy, Irenaeus, um, AD 185, he called Mark the disciple and interpreter of Peter. Not quite sure what interpreter means there. Um, maybe, maybe Peter needed actual language interpreter, or he was like explaining what Peter said to people. So it could be either way. But he also confirmed that Mark's gospel was what Peter had preached about Jesus. So there was one of these accounts that actually says that that um, Peter had read what Mark wrote, and he affirmed it. He ratified it. He said, yes, that's, that was accurate. That is exactly what happened. So I don't want to put too much emphasis on all of this, but what we see is a consistent, um, consistent references in early church history to Mark being the apostle. Now, what's important um, for us is where this information came from, because Mark was not a firsthand eyewitness of these events. So he's getting this information from Peter, as far as we know, and that makes a difference in the perception. The fact that he's writing from Rome also makes a difference, and we'll talk a little bit about that if we have time after the questions. So we are going to just jump into the questions now. So we are going to be right in Mark chapter 1, and I'd like for someone to read for us the first three verses. And then we have question one that is about the first three verses. Can someone volunteer to read those three verses for us? Yeah, Claire. All right, good. Okay, so let's look at this first question. Compare verses one through three with Matthew chapter one. What are some of the differences between the way that Mark starts his gospel versus Matthew's approach? What, what are we observing here? Yes. Lynn. Right, good. Yeah, so we have a very different start. We have, a, we have the genealogies in Matthew, kind of the slow ramping up, versus Mark kind of just jumps in with John the Baptist. What else? T. Yeah, so where, that's excellent. So where do you get the he is this, to use your words? He definitely is this. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, good. I like that. I like the way you said that, Mike. To me, Matthew just starts off with like, Jesus' earthly genealogy and establishes the line of David, whereas Mark just starts straight away with the Heavenly Father and that Jesus is the Son of God. 
Yeah, so that ties right in with what T was saying. You know, Mark, Mark just says, listen, Jesus is the Son of God. He says that right in the first verse. He says, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, declarative statement. Like, hey, this isn't up for debate. This is a fact. This is who it is. And as, as Mike was saying, you know, Matthew started with this long list of genealogies. And that kind of gets to who he is speaking to, doesn't it? We learned in Matthew, who is Matthew trying to write to? Jewish people, primarily. And so that genealogy was really important. Mark is writing to, Mark is writing from Rome. And he is writing, and we'll get into some reasons for this, primarily for a Roman audience. And within that, it's probably writing for Roman believers, which is really fascinating to me. So here's a gospel for us, Gentile believers. Here's a gospel that not only speaks to unsaved people about their need for Jesus Christ, the Son of God, but it also speaks to us. All right, anybody else on question one, or the first part of question one? Let's go to similarities. Any similarities here? Maybe not with Matthew 1, but maybe broader than Matthew 1. Yeah, Timmy. Yeah, good. Good, good, Shane. Same thing, yeah. So, so here, um, Mark cites Isaiah 40, verse 3. Both of them quote Isaiah the prophet. So that kind of points to the importance of Isaiah and his message about the suffering servant in the latter part of his book as being um, vital to the interpretation of the gospel. And then what about our last question here? What sense do we get of Mark's approach to writing from this comparison? Lisa. Different focus, different audience, good. Yeah, good. All right. Anybody else? How about, how about the pace? The pace of the story. How does, how, what do you think about that? Fast. Yeah. And it's fast because of what? I agree with you. It's fast because of the audience? What else? Not as detailed, yeah. So if you leave out, leave out all these details, you can just get right to the point. And he jumps in, he skips all of the birth, he skips all of the genealogy, he, he skips all of Jesus growing up. It's like, hey, let's just get into his ministry. We wanna know about Jesus, the son of God, and what he did that was significant. And so he just dives right in. And this pace issue is going to be an important thing in Mark. You may see in, in the top of the notes that I put that one of the key words is the word immediately. The word immediately is used 41 times in this gospel. That is a lot for a short book. And he, the, Mark is trying to move us from picture to picture to picture of Jesus. He's showing us that this is going to move fairly quickly, and that's important for us as we, as we watch the story unfold. One of the commentators I was looking at called the book of Mark a docudrama. It's almost like there's like this cameraman that's following um, Mark along, or following Jesus along, and he's just taking these, these pictures, and then he's putting it all together in this collage, and it's like moving from event to event. 
Another one of the ways that Mark does this that we'll see is he uses lots of miracles. He uses lots of miracles in this book and he cuts down on the teaching. When I say that, what I mean is he doesn't have these long discourses. We have a couple of exceptions, but he completely leaves out the Sermon on the Mount, for example. It's not in there at all. There's one verse that I think might refer to it, but it's not there. So what does he do by doing that? He's like moving it along. We're not going to get bogged down in these long sermons. Shane, anything else? Ah, yeah. Here, get to the point. <laughs> I like that. Thank you. All right, second question. In verses 21 and 28 of chapter 1, Jesus enters the synagogue in Capernaum and begins teaching. So first of all, where is Capernaum? So I'm going to give you a map here. Can you see Capernaum? It's in red, at the little red dot at the top of the Sea of Galilee. Now, the point that I was trying to get at here is look how close it is to Nazareth. That's probably 20 to 30 miles. Not that that's an easy trip on foot, you know, pre-automobile, but you could, you know, a healthy person could walk that in a day, two days. So, but given that, people in Nazareth probably don't know people in Capernaum really well. So Jesus is an unknown quantity in Capernaum, essentially. So that's where Capernaum is. So people are amazed at Jesus' teaching. One of the things that we'll see in Mark and one of the things that he emphasizes is people's reactions to Jesus. So as you read, look for people's reactions because Mark wants us to see those. So why are people amazed in these verses 21 through 28? He, Jesus of authority, right? He taught with authority. So why would that be amazing? He's in a synagogue. What does that tell us? Read between the lines a little bit here. Marcus. <laughs> I didn't think of that, but that's a good point. We know from other passages what people thought of Nazareth, right? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Was it Philip that said that? Hmm, good. What else? Somebody is not teaching with authority, which is why there's this, I think that's really, that's really, I think you're hitting the nail on the head. Yeah. So the people are used to going to the synagogue and the teaching they hear is not authoritative. Why is it not authoritative? Because men are making it up. Jesus teaches with authority because he's the son of God and he's teaching the word of God. That's authority. All right. The word authority is actually an important word also. I probably should have put this as um, one, of the, one of the key words. It's used nine times in Mark. We saw a lot of authority in Matthew, so we see some overlap, some similarity there. Um, here, this word is, the, the Greek word transliterated is exousia. This is the same word that we talked about when I spoke on Sunday morning a number of weeks ago that's in John 1.12 gives the authority to become the sons of God. So Jesus is exercising authority in his teaching. It means that Jesus had the right to do what he did, and he did it in a way that showed his power. It, the word is closely linked to power 
like the power of government is an authority. And so where do we see this going from a thematic standpoint? We see this headed toward Jesus's authority over men because he's the king. And we saw that clearly in Matthew, and we're going to see that theme reiterated in Mark. He, Mark begins to lay the groundwork for proving that Jesus has the right to rule. And we're going to see his authority in a number of ways. First of all, we see authority in teaching. And this is going to develop the servant king theme that Mark has. All right, so then how does he further demonstrate his authority in this passage? Yeah, so in, right here in, this, in these verses, we see one of his first miracles that's, that Mark records is he casts out a demon from a man in the synagogue. So one thing that struck me is, how is this demon completely comfortable being in the synagogue? Well, maybe that goes back to the earlier answer about the way people were teaching in the synagogue. And maybe it was just like the demon just put up with it you know, kind of like an undercover agent. I don't know. But Jesus knows when he walks into the synagogue, hey, that guy has a demon. And he casts him out. And he shows his authority a second time. And people recognize it in the end of 27. He commands even the unclean servants, or unclean spirits, and they obey him. And his fame starts to expand. Let's move to chapter 2. All right, so the scribes are critical of Jesus' statement in chapter 2, verse 6, to the paralytic man, but they don't say it out loud. It's kind of interesting to me. So they're, they're just thinking, you know, when he says that he can forgive sins, only God can forgive sins, right? So what's the irony of the thoughts of the scribes that are recorded for us in verse 7? Lynn. That's right. It's ironic because they're saying only God can forgive sins. It's like, well, yeah, because Jesus is God. That's why he can forgive sins. And they're not putting that together. It's like not even remotely a possibility for them to think that this person might be the son of God. This person might be the Messiah who is prophesied. They had such a closed mind as to what the Messiah had to look like. And it wasn't like this. It wasn't this guy. All right. And then what are two of the evidences of Jesus' deity? All right, sorry about that. All right, what are the two evidences of Jesus' deity? In other words, that he is God that we see in this account. Mike. Yeah, so he reads minds. <laughs> so this is not something that ordinary people do. I don't know what you're thinking right now. I'm perhaps glad that I don't. And he also healed, which is something that ordinary people don't do as well. What else? Anything else? Got one more. Claire. He had power to forgive sins. Yeah. So he asserted his authority to forgive sins. So we see again this building of Jesus' authority. 
drop down to verses 27 and 28. What does Jesus assert his authority over now? Yeah, Dave. Over the Sabbath. Yeah, that's right. So very, very forthright. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He points out what the purpose of the Sabbath is. The purpose of the Sabbath is to give people rest from work because they need that. That's what we need. We need a day off. We need at least one day where we are not working. And what is the title that Jesus uses to refer to himself? Son of man, yeah. So this isn't new from Matthew either. So this is, this is actually a key word in Mark, or key words in Mark, son of man. And it's key because this is the way Jesus refers to himself. He uses this title to refer to himself. And we spent a lot of time talking, or Tyler spent time talking about this in Matthew, about how the son of man title was important from the Daniel prophecy. Matthew actually uses this title like twice as much as Mark does, but it's important to Mark's gospel because of where he's going with his themes. Let's move on to chapter 3. So, first question in chapter 3. We see Jesus again in a synagogue. So, in in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, again he entered the synagogue, and and he sees a man with with a withered hand, and it's on the Sabbath. I don't know if this is the same Sabbath as where, he, you know, where we just were at the end of chapter 2 or if it's a different one. Um, but here he is. He finds himself in another synagogue with another person who needs help. And everybody's looking at him and saying, what's he going to do? And Jesus looks around and he sees the people looking at him critically And he comes up to this man with the withered hand, and he says, come here, verse 3. And then he poses the question to them, not to the man with the withered hand, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. They're not going to answer him. And he looked around them, and what are his emotions? Anger is one. Grief is the other. It's a holy indignation. He looks at this situation and he is angry and that anger turns into grief. And what causes those emotions? Yeah, the hardness of their hearts. So what do we we learn about this? What do we learn from these emotions? Yeah, Dave. Yeah, that's right. He's a fully man. He's capable of having emotions. Good. Oh, Lynn. I missed the first part of that. He had a divine nature. Good. Yeah, Cuppy. Hmm. Yeah. Good, excellent. God, God cares about our hearts. 
more than about what we do. That's good. Claire. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Mike. Doing evil angers God. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, right. He sees the hard heart of the Pharisees, and this hard heart is would lead these Pharisees to say, "Don't heal that guy." Can you imagine how little mercy, how little compassion is is wrapped up in these people? And it's really easy for me to get on my high horse and say, "Those terrible Pharisees." You know, if I was there, if I was there, I would do the same thing. We see, the, we see that God has emotions. We see that anger is not always wrong. Anger, when it's generated from, I can't get what I want, or something that I love is being taken away from me, that's wrong. Because that's self-focused, right? But anger at this situation is completely right. Because these people would deny this person healing. They are denying him a life-changing situation. They may be make, this may be making the difference between whether this guy can work or not. Which means, can he put food on the table for his family or do they starve? This has so many implications. And yet God is looking at the hearts and this hardness of heart is making him upset. And it grieves him that sin has taken hold of men's hearts and it has hardened them, it's encased them in steel, and it has like made it impenetrable to an instance that would make a normal person say, if you have anything you can do to help this guy, please do it. We have to evaluate ourselves in that context. Yeah, Tyler. Yeah. That's right. That's excellent. So, that, I mean, that's the way they got there. They didn't just wake up one day and said, you know, we're going to, like, hate on people that are, have disabilities. They, they were concerned about the law. They were concerned about the Sabbath. And over time, the, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, had developed this intricate set of rules to build fences around the Sabbath to protect it so that nobody violated the Sabbath. But in building those fences, those fences became God's. Those fences became the thing that had to be protected instead of the core principle and understanding what God was really doing in implementing the Sabbath for us. Okay, let's move on. Second question of chapter 3. I found this really fascinating. In verse 21, to, to whom are we introduced for the first time in Mark's gospel? Jesus' family, yeah. And what are the family members, why are they coming to see him? They just like missed him and they wanted to come say hello? Verse 31. Yes. They think he's having an episode. <laughs> this isn't the same guy we knew. What's going on? He left home and we haven't heard from him. And then we hear all this, this crazy stuff. And, and like, he, he's out of his mind. We've, we've got to, 
oh, this is such an embarrassment to the family. We've got to protect him by bringing him home. I think it's interesting that Mary is part of this group. I, I, maybe she's just there and, I mean, Mary knew who Jesus was. We know that from Luke's account. I, I mean, maybe she's there telling the brothers, listen, you guys don't know who he is. I mean, and, and she's just there because it's part of the family group. Or maybe she's there to try to prevent the brothers from you know, whatever. His own family, his own brothers, sisters, we know he had sisters too, don't believe in him at this point. So what is Jesus' reaction to being told that his family is outside looking for him? I'm sure. Yeah, who's my family? So he kind of redefines that. My, and my family is who? Everybody that is believing. That's right. Those that are obeying God, right, right. Now, he's not, he's not stiff-arming and rejecting his family here. He is, he is just saying what's really important is the people that are believing and walking with me. So why did Jesus react this way? Look at verse 21. I think we already talked about this, actually. So Jesus knew what they thought. He knew what their purpose was in coming and that they were trying to take him home. And that wasn't God's plan for him. And so he rejected that. Moving on to chapter 4. So I mentioned earlier that Mark doesn't have a a lot of long discourses, which are teaching segments. But chapter 4 is one of those. So in verse 11 of chapter 4, what does it tell us that for the reason, why did Jesus teach the crowds using parables? Yeah, Andy. So let's, let's read verse 11. It says, And he, he, Jesus, said to them, the twelve, To you, you twelve apostles, has been given the secret of the kingdom, but for those outside, everything is in parables. So in some ways, he's using these parables, which are like ex- are extended metaphors, in a way to explain things, but he's also protecting them from truth to some extent. He's also, it's a little bit hidden because the, like the parable of the, of the soils that he gave, he had to explain in detail to the disciples, which indicates that the people closest to him didn't understand. The people that were like not so close to him, I don't think they had really a chance. They're, they're not understanding what he's talking about. But he's trying to give these pictures predominantly of the kingdom, which is the main subject of the parables, of the, last, the last question here, in a way that is it has clarity for the disciples but not necessarily for the masses so the disciples didn't have special insight into the meaning of these parables they had to ask for explanation so we see a little bit of a distinction there because jesus had to explain the parables to him let's move on to the second question in chapter four how did, how did the disciples react to Jesus' sleeping 
through the storm in verses 35 through 41. I love this story. I, I, I would love to have the whole time to talk about this story, but we don't. So how did Jesus' disciples react? Fear. Yeah. Well, is that logical? Yeah, completely. <laughs> they, they, these guys were fishermen's, fishermen. They knew what a bad storm was like, and they knew this was a bad storm. They knew they were caught in a storm that they could not get out of on their own. And this fear translates into what they said to Jesus. What did they say to Jesus? Did they say, Jesus, we're afraid? No. Joanne. Right. Right. So I I don't know if you can hear what Joanne said. She said, "They, they said... He doesn't care about us. Jesus, do you care? So what are they doing? They're taking their emotion, fear, and they're translating that into a conclusion, you don't care. So is, what's the problem with that? Lack of faith? Right, exactly. Yeah, that's great. So they, they are saying, if you were awake and you cared, you would do something, but here you are sleeping. <laughs> it's amazing to me the, the humanity of Jesus that we see in this, that he's so tired that he's sleeping and this boat is just like going like crazy. What is, how does Jesus react? Oh, ye have little faith. He rebukes them. Yeah, yeah. What does he do first? Yeah, he calmed the sea first. He wakes up, looks around, says, peace be still. He rebukes the, the wind, the sea is calm, and then he turns to the disciples, verse 40, he said to them, why are you so afraid? Have you still no faith? Still. After everything you've seen. And they're like, well, Jesus, we've never seen you calm a storm before. Like, well, listen, you need to take what I have done and understand who I am and the power that I have. Can't believe the bell's ringing already. <laughs> and then what is the, what is the disciples' reaction to Jesus' reaction? Verse 41, and they were filled with great fear. Okay, they were afraid before. They're really afraid now. And why are they afraid now? Because he can calm the sea and, and, the, and the wind. It says, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? Tyler. Ah. Ah, that's awesome. Yeah, thank you. Creator spoke and the waters were created. The the Creator speaks again and the waters are flat. What do we learn about personal safety from this account? A little bit of application here. (laughs) Keep the boat on the dock. Don't go out in a storm. That was good. Yeah, Julia. 
We are safe in God's hands. We need to trust. Excellent. Wow, that's good. Anything else? Copy. (coughs) What a difference in reactions. Yeah. In the midst of the storm, the disciples are fretting and fearful and working, doing everything they can to save themselves, and Jesus is sleeping because he's trusting in the Father. He also knew that this wasn't the end. (laughs) There's so much for us in this. The safest place that you can be is in the middle of God's will. The safest place that you can be is in the boat with Jesus. Staying close to him. Yeah. Glory to God. Amen. This teaches us about sovereignty. This teaches us that Jesus does care even when it looks like he might not. There's so much. This, this, this miracle is so rich. But we have two more questions in less than five minutes. We get to the account of the demon-possessed man in chapter 5, verse 1. And the demons who possess the man, did I say chapter 5, verse 1? That's wrong. It's question 5. The first question in chapter 5. Whew. The demons who possess the man who lived among the tombs had a name. What was it? This is Legion, right. And why was it Legion? There was many of them. So what do we learn about demons from this account? More than one can live in one person. Wow, that's kind of scary. What else? They tormented this guy, right? Yeah. What else? They can speak through him. Ooh, Julia. Good. Isn't that amazing? The demons knew who Jesus was. We see that over and over. When Jesus encounters a demon-possessed person, the demon knows who he is. There's a key little phrase that's only used three times in the book of Mark. The first time we saw it in verse 1 of chapter 1, and it's Son of God. Mark said, this is the Son of God. Declarative statement as T said. I don't know if it was this account or one of the others, that one of the demons says to Jesus, I think it was the one in chapter 3, he says, I know who you are. You are the Son of God. And it's used one more time, and it's at the crucifixion. And at the crucifixion, we see unbelievable things happen, and the centurion says, surely this was the Son of God. Mark is showing us from sunrise to sunset in his book this is who this is Jesus the son of God we have one more question what miracle does Jesus do in verses 41 and 42 raised a little girl from the dead so now we see this like this healing taken to us new level not only can he heal a man's hand that is withered but he can put life into a dead body He is the one that gives life. It teaches us about Jesus, that he is the one that provides life. 
This is the king showing new dimensions of his authority to rule. So we're going to need to stop there, and I'll work some of the intro material into next week. Um, but 